Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Natasha Zaretsky, author of Radiation Nation. Natasha Zaretsky, author of Radiation Nation, Three Mile Island and the Political Transformation of the 1970s. Why this book now? Well, we're, we're coming up to the anniversary of uh, the Three Mile Island accident. The accident occurred in 1979. Um, I was interested in pursuing the topic because the whole question of the future of nuclear power is back on the uh, energy policy agenda as policymakers are exploring various ways to respond to the threat of runaway climate change. So nuclear power is being reconsidered um, as a... Uh, as an antidote to fossil fuels. Um, it's sort of seen as a clean energy form. So there's a debate, um, including among environmentalists, about the future of nuclear power. And the Three Mile Island accident was an, a kind of important watershed um, in the history of, of nuclear power. Um, another reason why I think it's important is, as I argue in the book, uh, the accident was not just a an important watershed in the history of nuclear power, but it, I think, revealed important things about the political culture of the late 1970s that I think helps to explain um, some of the polarization that um, characterizes American politics today. So those were a couple of reasons. Is it a clean energy source in terms of global warming? It's an interesting question. So technically, yes, it does not emit carbon, um, which is why a lot of policymakers and environmentalists are turning to nuclear power um, as an alternative to fossil fuels. Of course, the big debate about nuclear power um, is that it does emit um, radiation. There are radiation, uh, radioactive waste. Um, the question of what to do with that waste remains an open question um, in the United States and elsewhere about uh, where, to, where to put the waste. So um, it's certainly not um, a, uh, it's, it's not a technology that, that um, is risk-free by any means. But, um, but environmentalists who have turned pro-nuclear say that the risks of nuclear power pale in comparison to um, ongoing dependency on fossil fuels and the risks associated with rising carbon emissions. So it's a question of more or less risk. I think is how how big an industry is the nuclear power industry right now? So actually, um, nuclear power, I believe today, um, nuclear power accounts for somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of domestic um, electricity generation. So there are still nuclear power plants operating in the United States. But, you know, there was talk of a renaissance, a nuclear renaissance, really um, during the Obama administration. When Obama won in 2008, um, he pursued what was called an all-of-the-above policy, where um, the idea was that nuclear power would be part of a sort of arsenal of various energy um, 
energy forms that would be kind of back on the table. And at the time, the hope was that um, nuclear power would be ramped up again. Um, that's on pause at the moment, um, partly because of the, Jap the accident in Japan in 2011, the Fukushima Daiichi accident, um, which was a very serious uh, nuclear accident. Um, the other reason, though, I think the, the more significant reason is that there's such a boom in um, natural gas and in fracking. So um, the oil economy um, is is taking off at the moment is sort of one of the things that are fuel is fueling the U.S. economy at the moment. Um, and that um, as long as uh, there's a sense that we can keep digging deeper and deeper for oil and natural gas and engaging in fracking, I think that nuclear power um, isn't going to be uh, expanded as quickly as some, some would, would like it to be, as a, again, as an antidote to, to uh, fossil fuel emissions. How long has nuclear power generating for electricity been a thing? It's been, so interestingly, um, nuclear power uh, is an offshoot, of course, of the uh, rise of atomic weapons um, that, you know, the testing for those weapons start in uh, the early 1940s. And then, of course, you have the detonation of uh, weapons at Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945. Um, and so what happens is after World War II, um, industry boosters, the Atomic Energy Commission became extremely interested in the question of, okay, what can we do with atomic power in the civilian realm? And you have um, the rise of what Dwight Eisenhower calls the peaceful atom, this idea that the atom can be applied um, for um, civilian um, civilian uh, electricity, civilian power. Um, and early on, there are a huge number of sort of utopian fantasies about all of these different things that you can do with atomic power, um, geoengineering, changing the currents of um, hurricane, you know, all kinds of things with sort of intervening in the weather. Um, and then by the mid-1950s, there's this turn toward the focus on nuclear power as a source of cheap electricity. So the slogan people often hear is, um, it would produce energy too cheap to meter. And, and it's really in the late 1950s and into the 1960s that you have a lot of utility companies um, opening nuclear power plants. That's sort of the, the high point of nuclear power um, licensing and the, the, the launching of new plants in the United States. Was it controversial when it first started up? Um, most of the, in, initially, no. I mean, most of the controversy surrounding um, atomic energy was focused on atomic weapons testing. By the 1950s, you had a lot of worry about routine weapons testing that was a sort of part and parcel of the Cold War military industrial complex in the late 1940s and going into the 1950s. Um, and so initially, most of the worry about atomic energy was focusing on radiation emissions from routine fallout testing. And you begin to have, um, in the late 1950s and into the early 1960s, um, radiation scares. Basically, people really worried about um, radioactive isotopes fil filtering into the food supply, um, filtering into the air and the water. The nuclear industry itself, nuclear power plants, were somewhat removed from that, um, that um, set of anxieties, I think in large measure because the industry was really good at promoting the safety of nuclear power and saying plant power plants are totally different from weapons. They don't have any relationship to the weaponry at all. So um, 
for a long time that that was a sort of compelling argument, but eventually begins to fall apart. Well, would how much of, of what they said was true and how much of it was hype? About the, the nuclear power yeah, industry? Being, no, no radiation escaping and separate, uh, the, the nuclear weapons are one thing and nuclear power is another thing. It's a really interesting question. I mean, I think there's an important psychological dimension. Like, I think a lot of these people that were responsible for um, the, the introduction of atomic weapons were very much uh, invested in saying um, that, you know, something good could come out of something really bad because the advent of atomic weapons was ultimately so destabilizing to the entire um, global order. The, the detonations themselves at Hiroshima and Nagasaki were so much worse than what scientists had predicted and what the architects of the bomb um, had predicted. Um, and I think there was a kind of um, pervasive overconfidence in the industry um, about the safety of nuclear power. So at one point, there was one study called the Rasmussen Report in the 19, early 1970s that found that um, you were more likely, a person was more likely to be hit by a, a meteor than be um, the victim of, of a nuclear accident or be in the, in the path of a nuclear accident. So I think it's a, a really interesting question. I do think there was um, a, a kind of pervasive culture of overconfidence that was part of the kind of um, confidence in technology more broadly in the post-war years, this idea that you could design nuclear power plants that would be so well constructed, that would have so many um, layers of safety built into them that you would more or less um, eradicate the possibility of an accident. And they couldn't blow up. And the idea was that they could not blow up, that they, you know, so nuclear engineers constantly were stressing this to the public, that, that um, unlike a bomb, um, nuclear, powers could not, uh, nuclear power plants could not detonate. Why did it end up not being so that it was so cheap that you wouldn't have to meter it? Why I mean, that didn't never became, it, it never up? became a reality that it was yeah, so cheap? Yeah, I think that, um, so I think a couple of things. So the, the, the idea, I think, um, among early boosters was that this was just going to take off. And um, nuclear power um, was always a kind of more brittle industry and harder to get off the ground than what some of the earliest promoters um, expected. You know, getting, you, you can have the promise of cheap electricity on the other side, but, um, but uh, the initial in capital investment is absolutely enormous. Um, the liability is extremely high. So um, in the late 1950s, uh, Congress passed an act called the Price-Anderson Act, which basically said the government would foot the bill for 90% of an accident. So it had to basically like promise the utility companies that it, they would be protected. Um, from the worst consequences of an accident. So I think that it just was very, very expensive. It required huge capital output um, to get off the ground initially. And I think um, gradually there was this re recognition that you could put all of this capital into a nuclear power plant and then in one bad accident, it could be wiped out. Literally overnight, you could have all of that capital um, wiped out. But I think the other reason was that as long as you had access to cheap fossil fuels and oil, um, the incentive uh, just wasn't there. You know, if we could keep sort of riding uh, the wave of cheap fossil fuels, um, it just wasn't as attractive as what um, early investors had hoped.
Who decided to put Three Mile Island where it was? So I, I believe it was the, the company that um, operated Three Mile Island was called Metropolitan Edison, and it was a subsidiary of um, the GPU, the General uh, Public Utilities um, Group. And so it was a subsidiary of that uh, utility company. And I believe it was they were the ones who sort of scoped it out and did the initial exploration. Um, Three Mile Island, like many nuclear power plants, the one crucial thing is that um, water is used as a coolant in nuclear power generation, so you need to be near water, which is cor of course explains part of the appeal of um, Three Mile Island as a location. How did locals react to the possibility? I think initially they were extremely supportive. Um, the area around the plant um, was uh, a more stable region economically than other parts of Pennsylvania in the 1970s. Certainly, you know, there were a lot of parts of the state of Pennsylvania that were in the, the sort of death throes of the decline of the steel industry during that period. Um, the region around Three Mile Island is different. It has a more diverse economy because the capital, Harrisburg, of course, is nearby. You have um, the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch Company, uh, Dutch Country, sorry, and um, the Hershey Chocolate um, Company, which attract tourists. You have the agriculture of um, Lancaster County nearby, the kind of rich agricultural land um, and farming. So it's a more diverse economy than other parts of Pennsylvania. But nonetheless, in the 1970s, you still have worry in these parts of the country about the viability of its economic future, especially as you have more and more industry in the 70s relocating to the south and to the Sun Belt. So the entire Northeast is sort of wondering about this. And I think initially there was a great deal of support because even though Three Mile Island would not be a huge employer permanently, its initial construction required a lot of work. It created a lot of work. Um, it would take a lot of uh, people power, human manpower to build. And so I think initially there was a great deal of excitement about it. And there was a lot of confidence in the nuclear power industry um, at the very beginning, not among all of the citizens of the region, but certainly among a critical mass of them, I would say. Were there a lot of long-term jobs created? No, I think that the overall size of employment at the plant would be something like 500 jobs. So it wasn't enormous, but it, it was something. When did it go online? Um, gosh, it went online. Well, the the um, earlier unit, unit um, one of the units went online in the mid-1970s, and the other one went online, I think, in 78. So it wasn't online for very long before the accident. And for people who don't remember, uh, when did the accident take place? The accident happened in March of 1979. And what happened that caused an okay, accident? Okay, so the accident itself was what um, industry, people in the industry called a loss of coolant accident. So I mentioned earlier that one important um, part of uh, nuclear power is that it's water is used to cool the containment building um, and to cool like all of the rods and um, the kind of uh, construction in the containment building that are used to generate power. So what happened at Three Mile Island was that um, the uh, water supply was leaking. There was a leak in the containment building and so the water that's normally used to cool the plant's core was leaking out. and. Um, the operators of the plant did not realize this. There were mechanical errors that um, prohibited them from seeing that the water was leaking. And so this leak um, uh, went on for some time, um, causing both um, 
causing the core temperature to rise. And you had radiation that was leaking into the auxiliary building of uh, the plant, as well as small emissions outside of this. So this all began on March 28th. And the full accident itself lasted for over a week. It would be a full, I think, 12 days before uh, the governor and um, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission declared um, the um, accident really fully over. How much time passed between when they realized there was a problem and when the public knew there was a problem? So um, they, it was several hours um, between the time that the operators understood that there was a problem. Um, there was a few hours between that and the declaration of um, um, an on-site emergency, and then you know um, they were gradually um, informing uh, uh, the governor's office and the various emergency um, groups, sort of letting people know what was going on. I think the most crucial thing, though, so I think by the end of the day, it happened in the early morning on March 28th, by the end of the day, I think the Associated Press had gotten wind of the fact that there was an accident at Three Mile Island. I think the crucial thing in terms of the experience of the people who live near the plant, though, was that the initial reports were very, very reassuring. You know, they were, um, the, the um, Met Ed spokespeople were saying, you know, this is an incident. I mean, they didn't even call it an accident at first. They were very reassuring that um, there had been no uh, radiation emitted beyond uh, the, the plant itself. So while there was a leak within the plant, um, they uh, were emphatic that um, there was no threat to public health. And that, that narrative um, was um, uh, held really for the first, I think, 48 hours of the accident. How did the word get out that this is bigger than we originally told you? So I think that um, what happened was in a series of press conferences, um, it just became clear that there was a huge amount of confusion between the things that the Met Ed utility was saying and um, other kind of information coming out of, of the accident. So at a certain point, for example, a helicopter, there had been a planned emission from the um, from Three Mile Island and a helicopter had shown a, showed a huge uh, elevation, a huge spike in radioactive emissions that were sort of inconsistent with what Met Ed had been saying. There was, um, a, they had had to dump water out of the, off the island that had um, contained a certain amount of um, radioactive um, emissions within it. Um, there were just a huge number of sort of inconsistencies and it became clear, basically what happened was that Governor Richard Thornburg's office began saying um, in these press conferences, you know, the things that um, Met Ed have told you and have told us um, are, are inconsistent. Like we're having a hard time getting adequate information about what's really going on. So there were really three entities that were involved at this level. Um, it was the, the utility company, Metropolitan Edison. It was the governor's office because of course it was the governor's office that was responsible for figuring out uh, what the um, response should be in terms of a possible evacuation or anything like that. And then there was the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the federal body that's responsible for um, for uh, licensing plants and sort of overseeing the safety regulations. And there was just basically a huge amount of co confusion and poor coordination between all of these, uh, these three um, entities. And so um, things were just very, very confusing. How prepared was the area for an emergency? 
not as prepared as one would have thought. So the Nuclear Regulatory Commission required that all um, all cities and towns within a five-mile perimeter or anyone living within the, there was a, that there was an evacuation plan for anyone living within five miles of the plant. But the area surrounding Three Mile Island is actually um, really complicated um, as far as jurisdictions go. A lot of different counties kind of converge right around that area. Um, and there are many cities and towns and localities. And many of them, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and um, various other bodies, including a presidential commission that um, was held after the accident, found that a number of cities and towns were at actually did not have completed evacuation plans. So each um, town had its own, each municipality each made up its own Each town was supposed to have its own. So plan. like Middletown, York, all of these um, towns were, um, were supposed to have evacuation plans in place. And they were actually at various stages of planning. I mean, I think the thing that's really, really hard about this as well, and this was something that critics of the nuclear industry had been saying for a long time, is that there's something kind of... Um, absurd about sort of uh, saying, you know, a five mile radius um, is what you need to be focusing on. Because of course, in the event of radioactive emissions um, going out into the atmosphere, where those, um, where the radiation travels is totally dependent on wind direction. So it's actually um, extremely hard to figure out um, what what safety looks like in a situation like that, where you're, you're sort of reliant on wind direction, which is something you can't control in the wake of an accident. How close did they come to a, an evacuation? So this was a really interesting thing that um, I learned in the course of researching um, this accident. There was never a formal evacuation order um, issued at the time, but on the fifth day of the um, accident, um, Richard Thornburg issued an advisory to pregnant women and um, uh, children under the age of five years old living within five miles of the plant uh, to leave. It was never a mandatory evacuation, but it, it was an advisory. And the reason that Thornburg um, focused on pregnant women and young children was that there was a scientific consensus at the time that um, that the very young and, in fact, also the developing fetus were the most vulnerable to um, radiation dangers. And this was something that had been uh, clear since um, the atomic bombings at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that um, children and the very young and babies and developing fetuses were more vulnerable to radiation exposure. So it was an advisory, though. It was never an official evacuation order. And um, through looking at, at archival records, I discovered that part of Thornburg's thinking here um, was that he was concerned that a full-blown evacuation would actually be um, more dangerous to public health than the risks posed by the accident. Did they set up shelters for people who were They did. Um, they did set up shelters. Red Cross came in and set up um, shelters um, uh, throughout the area. But, you know, most people just hightailed it out and left. They did not. The shelters were used by some people who couldn't leave. But a lot of people, um, at least anecdotally, I gathered, um, just went to family and friends who were well beyond the site of the accident. Did you interview many people who were there at the time? For the I, I interviewed um, two people, but, um, you know, I was very fortunate because 
soon after the accident, um, some anthropologists who teach at Dickens, or who were based at the time at um, Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, they recognized the historical significance of the um, of the accident, and so they actually did a huge number of oral histories, something like 80, uh, 85, I think, um, oral histories, and those are transcribed and also um, available, uh, I think, for audio download as well. I read the transcripts um, at through the Three Mile Island collection that's housed at Dickinson um, College. So um, I, um, the other thing I did, there were huge numbers of depositions that were taken at the time. Um, a lot of the activists who became really mobilized after the accident around the future of TWI um, provided testimonies. So there's an extensive paper trail um, left behind by um, residents who were there at the time, sort of talking about what their concerns were. Now, your book has a subtitle, Three Mile Island and the Political Transformation of the 1970s. How did the Three Mile Island accident transform politics? So, um, right. So one of the things that I think is interesting about what happened at Three Mile Island, it's been, it's well known for historians of energy and for people who have studied the history of nuclear energy in particular, that Three Mile Island was a kind of important watershed in the history of nuclear power. Um, it was the worst accident at a nuclear power plant that the United States had ever seen. So in this regard, it was very important, and it, um, it certainly was one of a number of factors by the late 1970s that was um, going to put a halt to the licensing of new plants. No new plants were licensed for three decades after the accident, and that was part of the reason. But I was really interested. I'm, a, I'm not a historian of energy primarily. I'm a historian of U.S. political culture. And the thing that I was really interested in, the thing that got me interested in Three Mile Island, was that um, as anyone who's familiar with Pennsylvania knows, the region where Three Mile Island is located is a fairly um, politically conservative region, not exclusively, of course, but um, it's sort of uh, associated with the red part of Pennsylvania, the, the famous T of the electoral map in Pennsylvania. Um, and so the people who um, lived in the region tended to be um, white conservative patriots, many of them were religious churchgoers um, who sort of prided themselves on love of country and who had believed the reassurances of the nuclear power industry. I was really interested in, okay, so what happens to these people when they're confronted with an accident that really at the time was seen as posing a potential threat um, to um, public health. I mean, we see with the benefit of hindsight that the worst scenarios of the accident were never realized. But at the time, people were really, really frightened. I mean, you read interviews with people who said, you know, we were we left our home and we didn't know if we would ever come back again. Um, a tremendous amount of anxiety and worry about what this accident might do um, to the region. And so I was really curious sort of what happens to a conservative patriotic community when they are confronted with an accident like this. And one of the things that I discovered was that um, conservatives in the region sort of um, borrowed a lot of uh, both tactics and ideas from the protest movements of the 1960s. And so for me, it gave me a new level of insight um, into um, some of the complexities of conservative activists that you don't necessarily uh, consider when you're sort of um, 
hearing stories that just sort of posit like a culture war between right and left or this sort of binary between conservatives and liberals. To me, the people at Three Mile Island, what made them so interesting to me is that they were sort of borrowing different elements from all across the political spectrum and kind of creating a new kind of what, what I call in the book a kind of conservative ecological politics, which we don't normally think about as something that exists, but I argue that it exists. So I don't actually, just to be clear, I, I'm not arguing that Three Mile Island caused the transformation so much as my argument is that um, Three Mile Island is a kind of, what happened there is a lens or a magnifying glass, so to speak, that you can use to sort of look at certain ways in which conservatism is, is sort of changing at the local level. One of the things you write is that uh, on the whole, the community responded not by calling for more extensive government regulations, but by moving in the opposite direction. That is, by de developing an intense mistrust of the state. Right. So how is it that they took that accident and caused them to not trust the government? So that's a really interesting question. So in the immediate wake of the accident, um, you had basically a lot of local um, men and significantly women who um, were really suspicious and distrustful about uh, the official story. So the official story from multiple government agencies was that while there had been some small emission, radiation emissions from the plant, they had never been um, enough to, to threaten public health. And a lot of people in the area were skeptical, and certainly not all. There were plenty of people who accepted the official story. But a critical mass of people, especially women in the region, interestingly, did not accept that official story. Initially, a lot of the anger was directed at Metropolitan Edison, the utility company, because Metropolitan Edison um, was sort of the ones who were saying, everything's fine here, there's nothing to worry about. But gradually, over time, I think the community's anger um, was redirected away from the utility company and to the federal um, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And I think the reason for that was that it was the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that ultimately bore responsibility for the decision about whether the plant would reopen. So Three Mile Island was actually const uh, made up of two units, Unit 1 and Unit 2. It was Unit 2 that had been um, the site of the accident. And Unit 2 sustained far too much damage to ever reopen. But there was an open question after 1979 um, about whether um, unit one would actually be reallowed to reopen and resume operations. And there was a pitched struggle in the community um, between 1979 and 1985 about whether or not to reopen unit um, one, which of course eventually did reopen. It did actually reopen in the end. Uh, but so a lot of anger um, that had initially been directed at the utility company that seemed to point in the direction of like a classic kind of New Deal um, position like we we need heavier oversight, we need more regulation of this industry, was eventually um, redirected to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which was seen as sort of this Washington, D.C. agency that was uh, um, 
asserting its will over this community against the wishes of the people who actually live there. So, One of the things you also say, uh, that uh, Three Mile Island made clear that it was the woman's body, and more specifically the maternal body, that animated biotic nationalism. I want to ask you about that phrase. Yeah. But you say officials singled out three bodies as uniquely endangered, that of the pregnant woman, young child, and the fetus. As a consequence, the reason, region's conservative, patriotic white women emerged as central protagonists are articulating not merely a critique of authority, but an ecological reproduction-centered critique. So it didn't break down along Republican, Democrat, or, or exactly. liberal conservative lines. So that was one of the most interesting things to me, and it kind of gets back to some of these issues about the, how the accident illuminates political um, political transformation um, during this time. The um, the as the community mobilized around the future of Three Mile Island, it did not break down on partisan lines at all. In fact, there are plenty of accounts that say that you know the typical protester at Three Mile Island was a moderate Republican. So the thing that most distinguished um, who became active in um, anti-reactor mobilization um, after the accident were, was really whether or not someone had children. Um, the concern over the safety of children, I think, was the paramount issue. And of course, that meant that women, especially in their capacity as mothers, would play a really foundational role in trying to stop uh, Three Mile Island um, from reopening. And so they take all of these different elements, um, insights from the environmental movement or the, the emerging environmental movement and the ecology movement, but also they're weaving those things together with um, the um, abortion politics of the period um, and sort of bringing all of these different elements uh, together to kind of create a, a new uh, politics that doesn't neatly align with right or left or blue or red or Republican or Democrat. So you found people from right and left finding common ground on, on this issue? Um, you know, that's interesting. I mean, I think that that there was some of that. Um, but I think in general, there was a lot of skepticism toward the broader anti-nuclear movement that was sort of seen as made up of leftist protesters or protesters um, who um, were coming sort of from the outside. You know, the Three Mile Island accident was seized upon by longstanding anti-nuclear protesters um, who um, had been fighting to, to halt the spread of nuclear reactors for a long time. And really throughout, the, not just, not just uh, nationally, but globally, um, Harrisburg, you know, you had protesters in Germany chanting no more Harrisburgs. The accident itself became incredibly famous and a kind of symbol. The people at Three Mile Island um, really were adamant that they were not part of that broader protest culture. In fact, I found letters from um, local activists saying, you know, I've, I, my family's lived here for multiple generations. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you all the people in my family who live near the reactor, just so you see that I'm not a professional protester. I'm not an anti-nuclear kook. You know, they're very interested in saying, um, we are not uh, mobilizing because this is fun or a hobby to us. This is something we really don't want to be doing, but we feel like our um, our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives are potentially under threat from this technology and that we really have no choice. So their relationship with the broader anti-nuclear movement was actually pretty complex. Was the anti-nuclear war people and the anti-nuclear energy people the same 
people? Um, not that much at Three Mile Island. The lone exception I found at Three Mile Island, though, from the records that I did see, were local Quakers. So, um, you know, you have a Quaker presence in the region, of course, as well. And it was local Quakers who had a longer-standing history of radical activism and a kind of um, uh, pacifism. Those activists were more likely to, to really focus on the relationship between the nuclear power industry on the one hand and nuclear weapons on the other and sort of level a broader charge that um, these were sort of parts of a whole and that you couldn't talk about one without talking about the other. But a lot of the activists that I read about were much more just like, I, I, I want Three Mile Island closed. Um, and beyond that, um, didn't necessarily have a broader critique. What is biotic nationalism? Okay, so one of the arguments I make in this book is that in the 1970s, you have um, a kind of n development of a new strain of nationalism in U.S. politics. So uh, historians of American politics have, have argued that you can sort of see two different um, strains of nationalism, a civic nationalism based on this idea of growing inclusion and tolerance and the incorporation of more and more people into the political community, into the national community of the United States based on certain shared idea, ideals and shared values on the one hand, and an ethno-nationalism that's more based on um, racial exclusion, walls, drawing very clear lines of demarcation between kind of who's inside the nation and who's outside of the nation. And I argue in my broader work that in the 1970s, this second nationalism, ethno-nationalism, um, kind of uh, changes and it becomes angrier and more based on a sense of grievance. I think coming out of defeat in the early 1970s, things like the Vietnam War, Watergate, you know, there's just this sense in the 1970s that somehow, even though the United States remains a superpower, it's somehow gone off the rails, that it's not succeeding at, um, at exercising its power, that somehow it keeps kind of getting defeated, that it's been weakened, especially coming out of military defeat in Vietnam. The concept of biotic nationalism sort of builds on this idea. And what I argue with this idea is that um, in the 1970s, you have the body, ideas about the body and bodily inju injury and the weakness of the body um, becoming newly central to ideas about U.S. nationalism. And I, I use this, um, the, I use the body in two senses here. So one of the things I argue is that um, the nation itself is sort of imagined as a body, as kind of weakened, as enervated, as exhausted after the Vietnam War. And you have a lot of conservatives, <clears throat> excuse me, using that, um, thinking about the nation itself as a body. But the other thing that I explore, and this was certainly true of a lot of the men and women at Three Mile Island, was this pervasive sense among conservatives that they had been asked to sacrifice their own bodily health on behalf of the country, both in places like Vietnam, um, but also in um, the whole nuclear power industry. So, you know, you have nuclear testing at the Nevada test site, and by the 1970s, there's a growing kind of consensus that a lot of people who had lived near testing sites had been exposed to cancer. You have growing revelations that um, people who worked in plutonium plants, like in Hanford, Washington, were getting sick because of their exposures. So actually on the political right, you have a growing sense that the most loyal patriotic citizens 
um, that they're sacrificing their bodies, um, that they've sort of sacrificed their bodies for the nation, and that they haven't um, gotten um, ample recognition or compensation for that. And I think that that was something that um, hung over Three Mile Island as well, this sort of sense like we're the most patriotic Americans, like we're these loyal Americans, and yet we've now been subjected to the worst uh, nuclear crisis in um, the nation's history, you know, a kind of profound sense of betrayal and unfairness. Was it similar to the reaction on the right to the Vietnam War? I mean, did they have the same type of feeling that the government lied to us as they did in Three Mile Island, and it, did it drive them further to the right? Certainly, um, yeah. I, I think that some of the, the um, local residents compare it to Vietnam, you know, and they say, um, we are finding things now, um, we're finding out things now about Vietnam that we didn't know. Like, who's to say that five years from now they're going to come out and tell us, like, that this accident did in fact pose dangers that they're not um, willing to share with us now? Like, there's a, there's, you know, there were some people um, who were very confident in the official story, as I said, who, who felt fine living near a nuclear power plant. And there were some on the other end of the, of the, um, spectrum who, who who really thought there was a sort of cover-up and, and a deliberate attempt to sort of conceal how dangerous the accident had been. But I would say that most of the residents were sort of in the middle, and their feeling was they didn't trust that um, that the that the government or the nuclear industry really knew. You know, you have a lot of people saying things like, I don't trust the experts anymore, which is really similar. That's very much echoing with Vietnam, this sense that the experts, the best and the brightest, had gotten in, in, is, us into this sort of disastrous military mission overseas, and it had cost over 50,000 American lives and, un, you know, a, over a million Vietnamese civilians, the sense that the, the experts can no longer be trusted. So you have a growing... Um, skepticism about expertise and expert advice in the government that I think in some ways fuels this rising anti-government sentiment in the in the 70s. Keeps going 80s. today? I definitely think so. I mean, I see a lot of, um, I see a lot of re resonance between like the things that I was looking at in the book and contemporary um, skeptics of vaccination, for example. And again, like one of the things that happens at Three Mile Island is a lot of people go out and they start doing what um, scholars call popular epidemiology, which is basically lay people, non-scientists going out and saying, you know, we're going to do our own we're going to do our own investigation. We're going to go door to door and start talking to people about cancer. We're going to see if we can identify um, a cancer cluster because we don't trust the officials anymore. We don't trust the experts to, to tell us the truth. You have a lot of that at Three Mile Island. You have a lot of farmers um, reporting about animal illness and saying this is from radiation, even though you have the state's veterans going out and saying, no, this is not from radiation exposure. This is this is from a virus, or this is sort of normal um, stuff that you will see um, in you know any kind of farming community. But the the farmers themselves were on really high alert and believed that what they were seeing were. Um, was there anything to their concerns about about corn growing differently or <laughs> yeah. ducks with two heads? Right. Um, you know, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I mean, certainly um, based on all of the subsequent studies and follow-up studies done by the Department of Health in Pennsylvania, um, commissioned at the federal level, um, that those studies were all conclusive, that the amount of radiation emitted at the, um, at, at the time of the accident had never been sufficient 
um, to cause those sorts of mutations among plant and animal life. But again, those reports um, were very, very uh, common and widespread um, at the time. Um, and it's extremely hard for me. You know, I've talked about this book a lot, and I always tell people I'm a cultural historian. I'm not an epidemiologist. So it's very hard for me um, to say conclusively um, either way, um, kind of weigh in about the merits of their position. What I can say, though, is that I completely understand why there would be a lot of skepticism. I think one of the things that's really important to realize about the timing of this is that, as I mentioned earlier, the accident occurred at a particular moment when there were a whole new set of revelations coming out of places like the Nevada test site about um, cancer clusters in that region. And people in Three Mile Island paid attention to those stories. And they said, you know, if the Atomic Energy Commission back in the 1950s um, was saying atomic testing's perfectly safe and we now know that that's not true, why would we trust the government's reassurances now? And I think that they were completely, um, I completely understand uh, their level of skepticism in terms of the presence of an actual cancer cluster or something. I mean, I never found any sort of substantive evidence of anything like that. But again, I'm not an, ep an epidemiologist and cancer clusters are notoriously hard to identify for epidemiologists and people trained in the field. So I'm certainly not the, the, I'm not an authority on that at all. And what is your field of study? I teach U.S. cultural history, um, post-45 U.S. cultural history, with, with an emphasis on women, gender, and the family, where and do you, U.S. nationalism. Where do you teach? I teach at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, Illinois. How many books have you written? This is my second book. Who's the audience for this book? So the audience, of course, are um, other scholars and students of post-1945 um, U.S. history, but I'm also really excited um, to reach out to um, anyone who lived through the accident, who remembered the accident. I've had the pleasure of meeting a lot of people who lived in and around uh, the region at the time and have shared their stories with me, so I'm really hoping that um, my book can shed some light on, um, on the accident in kind of people's memories. I myself remember the accident. I was nine years old at the time. I was living thousands of miles away. I was out in California. But I remember the level of fear um, at the time. I think in some ways the reporting uh, was scarier the further away um, you were, interestingly. I think the national coverage of it was scarier than um, some of what was going on at the local level, actually. So what was the conversation like when the time came to talk about reopening the plant? Who fell so, down? Who fell on what side of the issue? Yeah, so there was, as I mentioned earlier, a kind of pitched battle at the local level around um, whether or not to reopen the plant. You had local activists, many of them women, as I said, um, getting really organized around trying to um, establish that the plant posed an ongoing um, health risk um, and needed to be permanently shut down. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, they're sort of going through and trying to actually um, accrue a, a mass of evidence showing um, evidence of radiological injury in the region, both in terms of the plant life and the animal life, but also accounts of illness, um, chronic illness, and um, among local residents. Um, the other thing that activists did was they, um, in addition to arguing that there was evidence of radiological injury, they also argued that the plant was kind of uh, 
posing a, a risk to the psychological health of the people of the region, that the people had been so traumatized by the accident itself and that it was creating a kind of level of fear in the community that um, they um, considered so severe that it warranted um, shutting down the plan. And so you had a series of hearings over really a five-year period um, in which the community was um, heavily mobilized, actually on both sides. There was also a movement to reopen the plant as soon as possible among supporters. Um, and in the end, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in 1985 ruled to reopen the plant. Who were the locals who were in favor of reopening the plant? I think a lot of them were people who had ties through employment uh, to Three Mile Island who wanted to see it reopened. And I think there were a fair number of people who just thought, like, you know, I'm more likely to be run over by a car than be killed by a nuclear accident. There were people that I, whose interviews I read who had been through hurricanes um, in the region and had seen um, flooding and who insisted that um, hurricane-related flooding had been scarier to them than the accident itself. So there was um, there was a, a wide range. That this was not um, there was not any kind of real consensus in the community. You write in here one study of nearby Middletown, Pennsylvania, the town where the TMI is, found that whether someone was liberal or conservative was no predictor of how they felt about the restart issue. The study found that the single factor that determined whether a local resident became involved in the struggle to shut down the plant was whether he or she had children. Right. So that's the really interesting thing for me. I mean, again, I mentioned earlier I'm a, I'm a women's and gender historian. So one of the um, things that interested me, again, was that it really is a lot about the family and ideas about parenting and what um, responsibilities of parents are to children. The thing that initially got me interested in Three Mile Island was as I was researching my earlier book, I would see images and photographs from, um, from the accident and so many of them featured um, images of mothers and children, like the image that appears on the cover of the book. Um, and I thought this is really, as a gender historian, I was just so intrigued by that. And I realized no one's really talked about that dimension of the accident before. And it got me extremely interested in the history of atomic power more broadly and the role of gender and uh, women's roles as mothers and how atomic energy has been kind of thought about and considered um, historically. So that was a huge... Um, thing that sort of drew me to the project and made me want to learn more about the accident. And anecdotally, I had talked to a number of people even before I started really delving into the research who said, yeah, I was on a road trip with my wife at the time she was pregnant and my wife made me drive like 10 hours out of the way at the time of the accident to avoid being anywhere near it. I heard a lot of stories like that that revolved around concerns about, about pregnancy and, and that was something that was borne out when I did the research. A lot of pregnant women had been extremely alarmed at the time. You said the there were pregnant women who considered having a abortions because they were afraid that the, of the effect of the Absolutely. Accident. Yeah, there were numerous accounts I found of um, obstetrician gynecologist offices being inundated with phone calls. In fact, um, there was a press release issued shortly after the accident um, urging women not to abort their fetuses. There had been so much sort of uh, concern among pregnant women that their fetuses had sustained uh, radiological injury. Um, and that's also extremely interesting to me because this was um, presumably this included women who were at least um, superficially opposed to abortion, but nonetheless at the time of the accident considered obtaining a, an abortion when they thought that their fetus had been 
endangered by radiation exposure. Is there any evidence that unborn children were damaged by the accident? No, I was not able to find any evidence. There were reports at the time of um, stillbirths, higher rates of stillbirth, uh, stillbirth and um, thyroid issues, but again, um, uh, and infant mortality. There was one um, report at the time that indicated that infant mortality had gone up in the wake of the accident, but um, that um, was refuted by the state had, that said, you know, birth rates as a whole also went up. So there's a whole kind of, there were charges and counter charges. Um, again, I'm by no means the expert, but I certainly didn't uncover anything on my own that would have indicated that. You mentioned the cover photo. Did you select this photo for the cover? I did. What is it about the picture you thought was uh, appropriate for the cover? I was really struck by the image because it's sort of a, um, a kind of iconic uh, scene of a mother and child. You know, I have children myself. I've done that many times um, myself where the, the woman's kind of leaning forward and trying to shadow her, her toddler and protect her toddler from falling. So it evokes this sense of protection. But in the background, you have these looming... Um, uh, towers, uh, the, the towers, the, the famous cooling towers that uh, symbolize Three Mile Island, and sort of so it's it's a little spooky. It's like the, this danger uh, that that the mother can't necessarily protect her child from. So it's sort of the the instinct we have to protect our children um, coming up against uh, technologies or um, things that are out there that um, that we can't necessarily protect them from in the end. Now you you write in the book about the the uh, the nuclear freeze movement mm -hmm. that started. Was that primarily for nuclear power plants, or was it like nuclear weapons too? So um, right. So interestingly, I feel like in American history, um, social movements around nuclear the nuclear question either seem to focus on weapons or on power. So in the 50s and 60s, activists were really organized around um, a ban on atomic weapons testing. By the 70s, there was a lot of focus on nuclear power um, and um, the future of nuclear nuclear energy in the United States. By the 80s, it reverts back, and the nuclear freeze movement is focused largely on the threat of nuclear weapons proliferation with the resumption of the arms race in the early 1980s when Reagan uh, takes power and, and becomes president. So it kind of oscillates back and forth. It's it's a kind of interesting dynamic. Are you write in here the the Roman Catholic Church provided the movement with its most influential backing. One bishop even advised members of his diocese not to seek employment in the nuclear industry. Right. So the nuclear freeze movement, which is the subject of the final chapter of the book, um, really um, was heavily influenced by religion. And, and one of the things that I discovered um, was that the, the Roman Catholic Church played a, a very prominent role um, in um, in freeze, in disarmament um, mobilization. Um, they were very strongly opposed to the nuclear arms race and um, spoke out uh, spoke out loudly and passionately against it. And I think um, what's interesting about that is I think it's sort of part of a, a broader ethics of life that sort of links nuclear weapons, abortion, eugenics, the death penalty. Um, uh, Catholic leaders believed that um, nuclear weapons were sort of inuring people to the, the horrors of mass death and to um, kind of undermining the sanctity of life, not unlike the arguments they made uh, against abortion at the time. 
did any of the people who were driven to the skepticism about government because of Three Mile Island then carry that on through and be opposed to nuclear weapons, or did that become then a, a left-right split? I think, again, like, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think, again, for a lot of the people at Three Mile Island, it was about Three Mile Island. Um, and that's something that, you know, a lot of scholars have um, have have talked about, this uh, this dynamic we call nimbyism, not in my backyardism. What happens when people become really mobilized around one issue about one site or one toxic waste dump or one thing in their community? I think one of the challenges is how do you get people's concern about that to translate into a broader um, political critique? And, and how do you get people to say, like, okay, it's not about me just protecting my own property value or my own family, but about actually making sure that no one is um, subjected to, to risks. Most of the people I read about at Three Mile Island were not interested in a sort of larger critique of the military-industrial complex or, or the nuclear arms race more broadly. How does the movie March of the Penguins fit into this? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, at the very end of the book, I sort of talk about the fact that we need to think about ecology and environmentalism um, in more complex ways than we maybe have up until now. Um, typically, when we think about the um, ecological thinking or the environmental movement, we tend to think about those things as um, associating them with the left or, or social movements on the left. But um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is how ecological symbols and ideas have been sort of taken up and appropriated on the right. <clears throat> and the March of the Penguins is a pretty good example of this because, you know, that's a story about a community of penguins sort of kind of protecting their most vulnerable members. It became a kind of very popular film um, on the Christian right. It gets kind of picked up by the Christian right, which is both sort of surprising and really interesting. So one of the points I'm trying to make is that this blurring between left and right um, happens a lot in environmental politics, and we shouldn't necessarily see it as an anomaly. Like, it's something we have to try to understand historically. Are you working on another book? Not at the moment. I'm working on a lot of smaller projects, but one of the really great things that's come out of this book is that um, I'm working with a lot of scholars who are, are interested in the history of energy and also the future of energy. And again, I think getting back to what we were saying at the very beginning, it's a timely moment to be thinking about um, how to understand energy historically, but also our, our collective future around energy. We've been speaking with Natasha Zaretsky. She is the author of this book, Radiation Nation, Three Mile Island and the Political Transformation of the 1970s. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.